With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Powered by Clear Vision Development Group, this is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leader's podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Better Than Before. Leaders who become great storytellers possess a great advantage in leading people. They also have a great advantage in leading teams and organizations. The ability to tell stories is a powerful tool, but the story itself is very crucial. Over the last year, we've heard some incredible stories from our featured guests. And the other day, I was just thinking, you know, I want to go back and pick out two or three of those and just run those again on the program because they're so fantastic. And so we're going to do that. We're going to revisit some stories and some lessons that we've learned. The first one is Michael O'Brien. He's the chief shift officer of Peloton Executive Coaching. And last season, I talked to him about the moment he describes as his last bad day. Well, I was at a company offsite. You fly out on Monday, you fly back on Friday, and in between, they try to torture you with PowerPoint and team building exercises and all that jazz. And I decided to bring my bike out to New Mexico. I wanted to cross New Mexico off the states I've ridden my bike. And I did that. But on the fourth lap of that morning, I came around to bend, and a Ford Explorer had crossed fully into my lane, Tony, going about 40 miles an hour and hit me head on. And I remember everything about that morning, the sound I made as I came into his front grill, I didn't have enough time to move. The whole thing was surreal. I thought certainly he saw me, he would move, he'd swerve out of the way. He never did. And I didn't, I couldn't swerve fast enough myself. I remember the sound of me hitting his windshield, popped a hole through it. When people go to my website, they can see the damage I put forth on that Ford Explorer. It's a little bit of a badge of honor that I have. And then I was knocked unconscious. And I, when I regained consciousness, I knew, I knew my life was in the balance, but I did what another cyclist can only do. I asked the question that only another cyclist can truly appreciate. I was trying to cut the tension in the moment with a little, little humor. And I asked, hey, how's my bike? And they just looked at me, Tony, and they're like, your bike's fine, sir. You got to focus on you. And when they said that, I knew, I knew things were pretty grim. And I just was holding on and they put me on the medevac to fly me to Albuquerque, the only trauma one center in the state. And when they did, I made a commitment to myself, a little bit of a bargain that if I lived, I would stop chasing happiness because that's what I was doing. I thought I'd be happy when I got promoted, made more money, had all those external merit badges that we try to go after in sort of a materialistic sense. And I caught some of them. They made me happy for a bit, but then they vanished. 
and I went back to chasing. I went back on that hamster wheel. And I knew if I got another crack at this, I had to shift my perspective on how I was living my life and managing my stress and just my overall perspective of my career. So what, what was the catalyst then that sparked you making the shift? Well, it was interesting because when I made that promise, hey, I'm going to stop chasing happiness. When I came out of the ICU and I was on a ventilator and strapped down in, in my ICU bed for several days, heavily medicated, I don't remember anything about those days at all. And when I came out, the doctor started painting this picture of a lot of dependency, pain and suffering, more surgeries. They told me, hey, the guy that hit you had a revoked license. Should have never happened in the first place. He shouldn't have been driving. So instead of like stop chasing happiness, I got really angry. I got bitter. I was like, why do good things happen to bad people? And then one of my mentors called and said, hey, you know what, Michael? I was having a sort of a down moment. I was playing the victim. And early on, I played the victim pretty well. And he said, you know, all the events in your life are neutral until you label them. And at first, I didn't know what he was getting at. I was like, what is that? Some like Star Wars thing, this Jedi <laughs> mind trick thing? He goes, nothing has meaning until you give it meaning. And right now, you're giving this accident the meaning that life is unfair. And sometimes it is. But you're the victim. And that's a label you're choosing. You can choose a different label if you want to. And he said, I have a bunch of labels you can choose from. But you have to pick it. And for me, that was an opening that this whole concept that we go where our eyes go, that I had to shift my perspective, shift, shift my vision so I could see other things. And for me, what I started to realize is that, you know what, once you lose your health, once you're in the hospital for a long time, all you want is your health back. And I really wanted the ordinary. I just wanted to be the best husband I could be, the best father I could be, good friend, good person, figure out if I could do those things, the rest of it would take care of itself. And so my vision became bigger than me. And that helped me start to shift my perspective. I started new routines. I knew I had to get my mind right in order to get my body healthy. So I started working on my mindset more and more. And eventually that helped me get out of my wheelchair, back on my feet, and then out of the hospital. But the journey didn't end then. It just kept on going and going. And each day I was working a little bit harder to make tomorrow better sort of like beat yesterday type of concept. Um, but that talk that, hey, everything is neutral until you label it, nothing has meaning until you give it meaning, was pretty powerful. And that helped me, like that was sort of the spark, the catalyst, if you will, to help me shift my perspective onto something bigger than just my little story. It was more about how can I show up for the people around me? Because they needed the best version of Michael O'Brien that they could get. I'm sure that you're like most of us, as we look back on our life, it hasn't really been in a straight line. It's not linear. I'm sure you had uh, ups and downs. What, what, what was the thing that kept you going toward what you wanted? Yeah, I wish, Tony, like it was linear, right? Like it's messy. You know, it's always messy before it gets clean. And God, I had so many moments where I made such progress. And then a complication would happen. Like a, I had one surgery where, a, you know, bone spur came off my leg and started lock, locking my knee and they went in to fix it, pull it out. And then that became infected. And there I was in the hospital for another week with a major painful surgery and six weeks of IV antibiotics right, right through my chest. It was, it was incredible. And I had some moments where I just cried myself to sleep 
going back to like, why, why, why do good, bad things happen to good people? So for me, anytime I got in a funk, anytime I got stuck, I tried to think about the bigger picture. And for me, the bigger picture to get past that resistance was my wife and my girls. I have two daughters. And just knowing that there are other people in my, I'll call it my Peloton, my group of, the Peloton is a group of cyclists in a bike race. So they need each other. And I needed people and we all need each other. And the head of my Peloton, the head of my group is my wife. And I knew, you know, she needed the best version of her husband she could get. And so that was part of my motivation. So even to this day, anytime I get stuck, I think about others around me others outside of me and that helps me get unstuck you know having that greater purpose i think we all need that and hey it's natural to get stuck it's natural to sort of go inward but when that happens if we can just take a breath hit the pause button if you will reflect a little bit and then find like little things we can do small action baby steps if you will to start focusing in on how we can make a difference in other people's lives that's a great way to get unstuck so if, if I were to ask you to just reflect a little and tell us a little bit about the version of Michael that exists today, how is that version better than the Michael before the accident? Oh, that's a great question, Tony. I'll give you two. One, I grew up as a kid, like I had some, you know, tough acne, like a lot of kids do, like the blemishes and you think everyone's looking at you and you just, you look in the mirror and you're like, you know, you, you don't you don't necessarily like yourself when you're a teenager and you go through that and you just don't think you're enough. Well, through this accident, I have some scars that are some doozies that are pretty impressive. And at first I went that place, that vanity place of like, oh, my God, everyone's looking at my scars. I've gotten to the point now, some of it's just getting older and some of it's the perspective I've gained through this whole journey is that. My scars, my blemishes, my gray hairs, which we all have a few more since this whole coronavirus that we're going through, I think they're wonderful and I think they're beautiful and they tell this wonderful story. And I think they tell wonderful stories about all of us, about what we can accomplish as when we go through something tough, that we might get knocked down, but we can get back up again, smarter and carry on, pedal forward, if you will. So loving who I am, imperfect as I may be, I'm a better human being because of that. So that's a key thing. The other thing is that I, I now can move out of my bad moments faster. When I was younger, early in my career, like the littlest things would set me off. I'd get triggered, I'd get upset, you know, classic like guy emotions. And then any other emotions, I would just try to pack them down. Now through this whole thing, you know, if I feel like, like I'm triggered, I, I grab a PBR, the type I talk about, not the path blue urban type, the pause, breathe and reflect type. And I can like experience that bad moment, but I don't want that bad moment to get any more fuel than it deserves. I don't want it to start to be the tail that wags the dog. So there's less intensity to them and they last not as long. So then I can go back to the things I'm really good at. So often we have bad moments that happen like a bad meeting on Friday that ruins our weekend or a tough commute that ruins our whole morning. And what I want for people is like, Hey, experience those bad moments. Those are a part of life, 
but don't let them ruin your whole day. Don't let them turn into a bad day. So find a way to hit the pause button, get some perspective and try to shift and take some action that goes, goes truer to your values. So you can put forth some goodness in the world, make it, make the world a little bit better for those around you. Stay tuned for more stories when Better Than Before returns. Brought to you by University Subaru. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. Because adventure still needs chasing. We gave the newly redesigned 2021 Subaru Crosstrek a more powerful engine. Plus, standard symmetrical all-wheel drive. And Subaru is the most trusted brand for six years running, according to Kelly Blue Book. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Test drive one of these today and you could drive one home tonight. University Subaru. Homegrown and proud of it. See dealer for details. Are you working twice as hard but enjoying fewer rewards? Maybe you're highly accomplished but you just can't seem to break through and make the next big move. Or you run a business that has begun to grow stagnant. It doesn't have to stay that way. Even the best leaders have felt as if their careers were spiraling out of control, but that's when they had to lead and lead big. Tony Richards' new book, The Big Idea, 52 Ways to Be a Better Leader Now, will help launch you forward in leadership. Learn how to take charge and lead yourself, lead others, and lead your company. Purchase online today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and our website, clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to the Better Than Before show. Back in October, I spoke with the wonderful Hillary Bilbrey, a certified life coach, and her journey to helping others started with this terrible accident with her child. Listen to this. I want to talk to you first of all, and it's probably a, a terrible place to begin, but your child had a very terrible burn accident, and so that sort of led you on this uh, track of overcoming obstacles and putting you in a position to help other people overcome obstacles. Would you mind if we started there and you could just tell us a little bit about all that happened and kind of how that affected your life? Not at all. Thanks for asking, Tony. It is, you know, there was a time where that was such a difficult thing to talk about. And the more that I have gone on and told the story, the more that I have healed and seen healing happen in others and realize that whatever happens in your life, you have the ability to pick up the pen and, and write the way that the story truly ends or the, tr the story truly goes. So I say that he's a burn survivor, not a burn victim, because mm. he's a survivor in every sense of the word and such a remarkable kid. And there's a story and there's a gift in every single thing that happens to us. And it's just whether or not, sometimes we'd like to give the gift back, but, but it's how we live it out, I guess that really matters. So uh, about, well, it was April 6th of 2003. We had just come out of the NICU with my middle son, who, great kid, Jake was born a little early after a bit of a scare where, I shouldn't say a bit of a scare my husband and I had actually planned out my funeral because there were all kinds of things and complications that were supposedly going to go wrong and it turned out the only thing that had gone wrong was 
he was born a little early and had to be transferred to a NICU hospital and a hospital that had a NICU. So as you can imagine, we were exhausted. We had an 18 month old and a baby that wasn't supposed to be born yet when we came home. And we were in a house that we had built uh, ourselves and had contractors come in. And my friend came and said, hey, Hillary, let's go for a walk. You've been, this just 20 minutes. You've been in hospitals for the last two weeks. Let's just, let's go. So I was gone for about 20 minutes. And in that amount of time, I returned home to an empty house. Um, my husband had been changing my, my, old, my baby, um, Jake, and my oldest, the 18-month-old Brock, had gone into our bathroom. And, and I'll just back up and explain. We had safety gates up. And he was climbing over them. And so we took them down in order to make sure he didn't get hurt. And we had a safety gauge on his tub. And we, so we were trying to do, we'd read the books, we'd done the things. The one thing we hadn't done was checked our water heater because we didn't, we didn't know we had to, we should have, and we know now. And our water heater had been installed um, at a 139, 140 degrees, which when you have a child, it should really be, or elderly, it should really be 110. Mm. And Breck was curious, got into our whirlpool tub and our master, turned the hot water on only in about 10 seconds is what they predict. He had burned the skin from his legs uh, all the way up to, to his bottom. And my husband rushed him to the emergency room and we had to go through we were supposed to be helicoptered. This was in Wisconsin to the burn unit down in Madison. And the helicopter got diverted because a cow sat on a woman, which only could happen in Wisconsin, I think. And cow then, country. Right. Could exactly. Could only happen in cow country. <laughs> That's cow country. Mm -hmm. And then from there, uh, he was transferred down to the Madison burn unit. And we're there for about a month. And it was hard. There were investigations there were and obviously it was a, just a horrendous horrible accident and coming out of it it was such a struggle to get our footing back again because as you can imagine we'd built the home of our dreams we were married we had two young boys we had survived the, what we thought was the hardest and now here we were this picture that we thought what life was going to be what our family was going to be was shattered in a million pieces and there was guilt and there was blame and there was hardship and there was is he going to be okay and the first night he was there he was overdosed um, because not due to that hospital but but in the transference there were uh, too much medication was given and so it was just all the things, how do you make sense of it? And it was really out of that, that I really found the need. And I had to, I had to find a way out to be better for my family, to be strong for my family, to recapture who I was as a person again, because I didn't want the kids to grow up feeling afraid or not having a present mom because I couldn't re-engage again. So that was really what started my journey to trying to figure out what my next steps were and, and where I am now. And I, and I think you were telling me when we visited before that this was really hard on your husband. It was, this was, it was so hard on him. I mean, it was incredibly hard. He is such a remarkable man and how can you, anytime any of us are the person that's there, even if it's an accident, you, what, what if this, what if this, what if this, and you know, that was such a, it was a difficult thing. And, and 
he takes very seriously being a provider, of course, and protector and all of those things. And, and so what does this mean? How do you reorder it? And some of the same thoughts were going through my head too. You know, how do you, how do you reorder what life looks like and who I am? And if you go by mom or you go by dad, or you go by whatever that is, and that picture shatters, what does that mean about who you are? Mm -hmm. And that was what really helped. I had one woman that I would talk to, Sally. And every time I talked to her, I felt better. And I didn't know why. And finally, one day I said, why is it? And she was just a friend. I said, why do I feel so much better? And she said, well, it's this thing called the Virtues Project. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, well, I'm companioning you. I'm helping you become the hero of your own story. I'm helping you work through it on your own and I'm not fixing it for you. And I thought, well, I got to figure this thing out. So I sort of dove in head first and what I discovered going through that process is there is there are these these virtues that we talk about that are found in every religion, in every ethnicity, in every background, and they're found in every one of us. It's our kindness, our excellence, our humility, our compassion, our assertiveness, all those things. Sometimes they're out of balance but we have them all and learning to recognize them and identify with them and align them in your life and to see them in other people brings out the very best in you and brings out the very best in the people around you, it inspires people to become better than they thought was possible. And I learned going through that process that if I could identify myself, not as the picture of what a mom is supposed to be, but if I could just anchor myself to the kindness and the love and the care and the excellence that I tried to bring to that, no matter what happened and shifted in the picture, I could still show up authentically as who I wanted to be. And that would never change. And that could anchor me to the present and anchor me to my family. I can tell at your heart and at your core, you really believe in this. So it sounds like that was a major catalyst for you becoming a life coach. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I appreciate that, Tony. Most of the time when people come to us, they're seeking clarity. It's a privilege to walk alongside them and help them uncover, you know, not us showing up and being the hero of their story, but helping them uncover the fact that they indeed hold the keys to their own prisons, their own lack of clarity, and, and so on. And, and it's such a privilege. We'll continue with our last story coming up on Better Than Before right after this. Because adventure still needs chasing, we gave the newly redesigned 2021 Subaru Crosstrek a more powerful engine. Plus, standard symmetrical all-wheel drive. And Subaru is the most trusted brand for six years running, according to Kelly Blue Book. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Test drive one of these today, and you could drive one home tonight. University Subaru. Homegrown and proud of it. See dealer for details. Receive weekly coaching tips from Tony Richards, delivered straight to your inbox. Whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, Tony can help you reach your goals and give you a competitive edge within your industry. Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo covers topics ranging from leadership development to teamwork to company culture and more. Text the word leadership to 38470 to sign up for Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo or sign up online at clearvisiondevelopment.com.
Hello, everyone. We're back. And in our last segment today, I'd like to revisit a story from Jennifer Emery from London, England. She's a lifestyle transformation expert, and she almost lost her life when she was a teenager. Listen to this. I was 12 years old. It was a few days before Christmas, and I can remember sitting on the sofa watching TV. And I think my dad had been out singing. So my dad used to do that's a country and western singer, and he'd travel around and the UK um, with his band. And I can remember sitting on the, the sofa sort of when I came back in and noticing a tingling sensation around my lips, almost like a, a pins and needles feeling. And the, it, it, it started to spread over the coming days um, across my face and then throughout my body. And by the day after Boxing Day, I'd gone from feeling these pins and needles which started in my face, right the way through my body. And then by the day after Boxing Day, I could hardly walk. Um, and they had to take me into hospital. My parents had to literally drag me because I, I, I couldn't walk. Um, and they took me in. And at the time, the doctors just they didn't have any idea what, they, what it was. They, they thought it could have been meningitis. So they gave me a lumbar puncture. They gave, did so many different tests. Um, it's one of those occasions where you're, you're lying on a bed surrounded by the doctors, the trainees. Um, if I could have sold tickets to people to how many people were there because they just didn't have a clue what it was and they were trying to sort of figure out. Um, but I can also remember being very frightened at the time because I was only 12 years old and I didn't know what was happening to me. Um, I, I ended up in intensive care. I couldn't, I couldn't lift my finger up. I could just about blink. Um, I was... Um, it was a really, really hard and tough time. And it was really, really difficult for my parents to see it. Um, to see, I could see in their face the worry. Um, you know, they didn't know what was happening. And it turned out that it was Guillain-Barre syndrome. And only one in so many, I think at the time, so many million um, got this syndrome. Um, it wasn't, as I said, it wasn't very well known. The doctors didn't really know. They brought a specialist in um, to sort of look after me time. And that went on for quite a while. I was in intensive care for about a month. And the doctors didn't know whether I'd actually come through, if I had made it through, how I would be on the other side. So whether I'd be able to walk, whether I'd be able to run, whether I'd be able to do just the simple things that we all take for granted. Um, and I think the, per the perseverance of my mum, who gave me physio pretty much on the hour, every hour, and bless her, she hardly slept, um, to just to help me get back to walking. And then within probably about six to 12 months, I was walking, um, walking properly. And I was able to, I suppose, start to live a more normal life, but it took several years to overcome the breathing difficulties that I had. Um, it was a very, very strange time, uh, a time that uh, I had to, the doctors actually said that usually when someone contracts this, they contract it again. Now, touch wood, I've not actually contracted it since. So um, hopefully that's not going to happen. Um, it's gone and not coming back. It, it's gone and it's not coming back. That's and right. I suppose to see where I am now to where I was then, to not knowing whether I'd be able to walk and to actually running a business all around dance and movement. It's incredible the, the, the journey that I've been on. Gosh, you just, um, you know, you, 
I can't imagine. And I've been in that situation a couple of times where, you know, you got the breath knocked out of you or it's just maybe you had a real heavy chest cold or whatever, and it's difficult to breathe. But thank God it only lasts a little while. I mean, yours went on for a long time. Yes, it did. I mean, in, in the hospital, the every I think it was every couple of hours they were checking my breathing. Uh, they had me blow. I can remember them had me blown into a tube. Um, it almost looked like a toilet roll holder <laughs> in this concept. Yeah. Um, a toilet roll um, that I'd have to blow into. That's all I can sort of sort of remember back from there. They kept checking it because my breathing um, it was getting harder and harder to breathe. So. Uh, it was touch and go, and I nearly went onto a ventilator, but they managed to keep me off the ventilator. But I was par- I was paralyzed. I couldn't move my t- little toe. I couldn't lift my finger up. Um, they had to feed me through a drip, and it, it was a really, really testing time and a really, really tough time. I think something like that, when that gets you, it, um, what I suppose what was a driving force for me, and we always say about everything, like, what's your why reason? My why reason back then was because I loved hockey, and I wanted to play in the, there was a hockey in, in the team hockey for the school. Uh-huh. And that was my driving force in my head. It was to get out because I was missing out on playing hockey. Um, so whether that was something in me that, that, that made me determined that it wasn't going to beat me and that I was going to come through this um, and be fitter and stronger mentally and physically. And, you know, then you also had this terrible situation happen with the death of your brother. Yeah, that was... It's, it's very, very tough because for, for men, um, men don't generally talk about their feelings. Women generally talk more about their feelings than men do. Um, my brother, he would have been 49 last week, um, but it was in 2013 in June. And I can remember I was at the t- when I found out I was teaching a live fitness class in the community and I was, it was a, so it's a, it was a British Legion, so like a local um, club. And I can remember my husband walking into the room. I'll never forget the day. I was finishing off the class. Um, I was cooling the, 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 my clients off. And the song, The Circle of Life, was my cool down. Mm-hmm. And my husband walked in and I could see him walking. I was thinking, why is he walking in by himself? He hasn't got my daughter, do- he hasn't got our daughters with him. Why aren't, his do- why aren't our daughters there? And I just saw his face and it was white as a sheet as I was cool. And, and when I was thinking, what's happened? My first thought was my chil- our children, what's, what's happened? Something's happened. And I finished the class off and he walked up onto the stage and he took me into the dressing room where he told me that my brother had taken his own life. He'd filled his pockets with stones and he'd taken himself to the local marine lake and he'd drowned. Oh he'd left. He'd left notes for the family. Um, it's actually sending um, sort of shivers down my spine moment. Um, it, 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 he, yeah, he left notes saying they you know it was better off not being here. Um, that he was at peace with himself, and that it was it was his time to. And it was it was a horrible experience. Now we all know we've all we've all lost someone in our life and generally you expect it for people to die of generally natural causes. You know, they, they get older, that you age and then you, you, um, you know, we're, we're all, you know, we're all dying. <laughs> we're born, we're all, we're all going to put death. But sure, you don't I know what you mean. Someone to end it 
or to feel like they've got to end it. Um, and I think the hardest part was seeing the impact it had on my parents. Mm. Seeing that because you never expect as a parent that your child will go before you. Right. You always expect that you'll go before before your children. Right. For them, the the eldest son has gone before them, and it wasn't like it was sort of natural things that have happened. Is he actually decided that he didn't want to be here anymore, and my, my, he had um, bipolar, and it was very hard for a few years in the run up to it. We first noticed his, his change in moods. So it started off where um, he was very vibrant, my brother. He was also a singer. He loved to sing. He loved the stage. He loved, um, you, you know, there was always a bit of um, healthy competition between, you know, brother and sister. I've got, I've got um, four brothers, four older brothers. And there's always, always that competition with being the only, only girl um, that had to keep up with the brother, my brothers. And there's always this healthy competition about, you know, who was the best singer, who could, you know, who was good at this. And it was always sort of like the running joke. Um, but he got to the point where um, we now started to notice his moods change. We started to notice that um, it wasn't the normal Tom. It wasn't, um, his, his moods were so up and down and then it, it, it got worse relatively quickly only over the space of a couple of years um they put him on medication and as a result he gained so much weight which then sent him in a, into a depression and he was a shadow of his former self and the you know we tried so much to to get get help but the problem with mental health is that you know people got you when you've got cut people can see it when you've broken your arm you know people can tell you've broken your arm and and there's that sympathy there, isn't there? There's a, you know, oh, you, someone recognizes straight away. With mental health, a lot of the time people don't know if someone's struggling with mental health. Oh, sure. Only those closest to them would know that. Right. Um, generally, most people keep that to themselves. It can be a very private thing, and there's a bit of a stigma around it, as we know. And obviously, there's more and more awareness being raised about it now, especially sort of. Um, for men, because as, as I said earlier, you know, for women, we generally will talk about things more so, whereas men generally keep it to themselves. Well, you know, you um, you talked about how you overcame this terrible, debilitating, personal, physical um, disease, yeah. and then this terrible, terrible personal tragedy. And mm -hmm. you you say you've kind of persevered through all this through music, movement, and mindset. Do you want to? take those one at a time or do they all kind of tie together? They, they all, they all sort of, they do tie together. I mean, if I go back to when um, I had Guillain-Barre getting out of it, I want I, my why reason was hockey. It was movement. It was, you know, I wanted to move. I also, you know, I, I, I was a singer. I wanted to sing. I wanted to get on the stage. The music was there. I wanted to be back doing the things that I loved doing. Um, and that made me happy. And I think a lot of the time we can forget about the things that, or we do less of the things that actually make us happy because we're doing everything else for everyone else. Um, and again, the same with my brother. So one of the things to, to get me through was music. Now I love music. I also fully understand how music can impact our moods. So 
um, after my brother passed, um, one of the things that uh, I made a conscious decision of was one, I was gonna, I needed to work on my mindset because I could sense that I was, my moods were dropping because uh, this is something that, you know, I wouldn't wish this on anyone. I wouldn't wish that, you know, anyone else to go through what we went through as a family. And what to this day, you know, we're still going, going through it. it. It never goes away, that pain. Um, but it's how you manage it and finding out sort of what make what actually deep down what makes me happy. Music makes me happy. I fully understand that how music can can change someone's mood instantly. So as we all know, there's, there's um, I'm trying to think of particular country and western singers. You know where you listen to the music and you, and you think I just want to get up and I want to dance, <laughs> or you know d- just keep dancing. Um, and then there's other artists who. The music is a bit more, what, how should I put it? Cry in your beer? Yes, <laughs> cry in your beer. And it's probably the worst thing that you can do and listen to when, you, you mood, when you're not in the right place. You mood. So for me, it was like, right, okay, I wanted to create an environment where regardless of what's going on in your life, if you're having such a stressful time in your life, whether it's to do with COVID right now, to do with stress, family, work-related, that there's a place that you could come to that the music was going to be uplifting, that it was going to have you smile, it'd have you singing, but you'd be working out at the same time. So you'd be looking after your body, looking after your health. It was a community that a supportive community that would come together and support each other, regardless of what's going on outside of it. For me, it was like, I understand music. I know what lifts people up. And I'm very conscious, even with playlists that I'm creating, that it's all about uplifting um, and making people feel happier and almost dancing out of the darkness. So to know when you come in, come in um, to my community that I'm going to help you lift your moods, whatever mood you're in. It's been an incredible journey. If you would like to hear more of the interviews from these guests and more over the last four years, they're all archived for you under resources and podcasts at our website, clearvisiondevelopment.com. That's our program today. Better Than Before is brought to you by University Subaru. From here, been here, always will be here. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. I'm Tony Richards, your host, and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode of our show, Better Than Before. Thank you for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast powered by Clear Vision Development Group. For more resources from Tony, visit clearvisiondevelopment.com. Join us next time for another episode of Better Than Before with Tony Richards. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.